Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I want to talk about one of the more common subjects that comes up in relationships, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness is always a part of how we interact with other people because, well, we are fallen individuals living in a fallen world, and stuff's going to happen. We're going to sin against each other. I do it. You do it. We have these dust-ups in our relationships, and it's important that we know how to resolve our messes so that we can help each other, so that we can reconcile for our benefit, but also for God's fame. And so I want to spend the next few moments talking about what biblical forgiveness is, and it is going to be super practical. Life Over Coffee is a ministry that has been existing since 2008. We believe that any two individuals can sit down and do Life Over Coffee. We bring help and we bring hope to one another through this ministry. And if you're not familiar with Life Over Coffee, then we welcome you to come to our coffee shop. It is lifeovercoffee.com and almost all of our resources are free. I have been producing content since 2008 in a read, watch, listen format. And so you can read until uh, until you're completely satisfied. You can watch hundreds upon hundreds of videos. And of course, you can listen to more than 1,000 podcasts. And so you choose how you want to consume our content. But all of it is written from a biblically base. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. But also, it is very practical. People who come to lifeovercoffee.com appreciate the practicality of our resources. And I trust that as I walk through uh, this brief talk on forgiveness that uh, you will see the benefit uh, for you. You could literally spend years in our coffee shop and not consume all of the content that is there. So check out lifeovercoffee.com and of course if we can serve you in any way just scroll right down to the bottom of the website on any page and click the get in touch feature and let us know how we can help you. You will find in almost all relationships that that do not reconcile, that there's something between them that is not right. And that something almost always has to do with forgiveness. Even Christians who love God, they love God and love others more than anything else. They want to adhere to what the Bible teaches but yet they do not understand how to practically walk through forgiveness. Forgiveness is a multifaceted, God-centered opportunity for two people to reconcile after there has been a transgression. Well, it's not always straightforward because of the complexity of sin and there are some relationship complications. I'm not suggesting that you can learn what I'm about to share with you, and then every time there's a dust-up between you and someone else, that it's always going to reconcile. Sin is not that neat, and sin is not that cooperative uh, to where we can resolve all of our problems neatly and go on our way. Sometimes you will not be able to reconcile at all. Sometimes forgiveness, you can apply it to your life, but the other person will not cooperate. Or maybe they cannot cooperate because they have passed away. If you're in a situation like me, my daddy died in 1978, and we were never reconciled. I became a Christian in 1984. I'm not sure if he ever became a Christian. And so because of the nature of our relationship and because he died several years before I became a Christian, I could not act out forgiveness in a transactional way with him. But how do you handle relationships like that where someone has passed away where you can't talk to them anymore? I'm going to discuss that too because, again, forgiveness sometimes has jagged edges to it and we cannot neatly reconcile all relationships. And so in this episode... 
I want to walk through the many aspects of forgiveness, making practical applications in various situations, but I want to begin by giving you a sorry illustration. Now, what I mean by a sorry illustration is the the concept or the process that has been substituted for forgiveness within the Christian world is when people simply say, I am sorry. Well, the truth is that is not a biblical approach to resolving relational conflict. One of the reasons for that is because when there is sin between two people, there is an offender and there is the offended, there actually has to be a transaction between the two people. There has to be an active transactional interaction with those individuals. I I am sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. That is not an interaction. That is a passive response that doesn't give the other person, the offended, the opportunity to reconcile with you. I mean, this is not how we ask forgiveness from God. God, I am sorry for what I did. No, that is a sorry illustration. I tell some people that you should never apologize. You should never say that I am sorry. Ironically, the word apology means it is it is to give it a defense. This is what Peter talked about, that we should give a defense for what we believe about the gospel. An apology is defending your position. An apology is not something that we should bring in to uh, transgressions between two individuals. We want the other person to respond to our active requests for their forgiveness. Let's say that a husband and wife, that the husband sins against the wife, and the husband eventually comes to his senses, and he says, "Uh, baby, I'm sorry for what I did, and then he moves on about his day. That is not how forgiveness happens. Now, it's okay to say that I am sorry for non-transgressive events. If I come home late one day and and I I told my wife that I would be home at 6, but I'm home at 6.15, I did not sin. Something has happened, but it inconvenienced her because she was expecting me to be home at 6. I could say, honey, I'm, I'm sorry for being late. And then I could explain maybe what happened, etc. But that's not a sin event. And that is a good place for I'm sorry to work within Christian speak. But when there is a, a transgression, when there is an offender and the offended, then we need to make sure that we actually transact our forgiveness with each other. And that's where I'm sorry just won't cut it. Now, another thing about forgiveness is that only Christians can biblically forgive one another. We cannot forgive those who are not Christians. Those who are not Christians who sin against us, they can ask for our forgiveness, but the truth is there cannot be a removal of that sin between a Christian and a non-Christian. The reason for that is, is that God hasn't forgiven them at all. It says in John 3.36 that the wrath of God comes down on heaven. Uh, The wrath of God is resting on people who are not trusting Christ. Paul said a similar thing in Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God comes down from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who push the truth of God out of their lives. A person who is not a Christian is actively pushing the truth of God out of their lives. How can they be forgiven of this sin that they committed against me or against you when God has never forgiven them at all? It doesn't work that way. And also in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we understand that the unregenerate world, they're not Christians at all. They are dark. They are futile. Paul would say in chapter 4, verse 17 of Ephesians, that the Gentiles walk in an ungodly manner, that they are dark and alienated. They have futile thinking. You see, in order to 
act out forgiveness between two believers, God has to work in the offender's heart. He has to start granting repentance to the believer who has created a, trans, uh, a transgressive event. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it talks about how God grants repentance to his children. God doesn't grant repentance to a dead person. Uh, the Spirit of God can't illuminate a natural person, and so there's no illumination, there is no conviction, there is no light, there is no power. And so a person who is not born again, they are still in their darkness, and there is no forgiveness whatsoever. By the way, James chapter 4 verse number 6 says that God opposes the proud and that language there in James 4 6 means that God is a warring army against all people who reject him. And so possibly we can we can bring some kind of reconciliation within our relationships with a non-believer, but there will never be forgiveness because God's wrath is resting upon them. God's wrath is raining down on them. They have natural minds. God is a warring army against them, and he's not granting repentance to a, a dead individual who has not been quickened or made alive by the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that empowers us and illuminates believers, and that is the active agent that motivates us to want to seek forgiveness with another individual. And so when we transgress God's law, He brings conviction into our souls, into our psyche, which is a synonym for the word soul. We can grieve the Spirit of God. We can quench the Spirit of God. And when Whenever we transgress God's law, we will grieve, we will quench, and we will sense that conviction in our souls. That is what alive beings do. That is what the Spirit of God does to His children. And as we experience that conviction from God, guess what? We now become motivated to want to act out forgiveness. And so forgiveness is a, a superior way of living our lives. It is a, a mercy from God that He would give us the ability uh, to not just say, I'm sorry, uh, not, not just trying to put a band-aid over the things that we have done wrong, but forgiveness is superior. Let me walk through just a few ways that forgiveness is better than I am sorry, is better than any approach to reconciliation that our culture can offer. For example, forgiveness heightens the awareness that somebody sinned. And so when the Spirit of God illuminates our minds, it's like, ooh, there is something wrong here. I need to step into a forgiveness process. Forgiveness also is part of the entire sequence of repentance. Forgiveness is not repentance, but it is one link in the chain of repentance, and I'll walk through that in just a moment. Number three, forgiveness allows the sinner to be free from what they did. This is the beauty of forgiveness is that when I sin against my wife, our children, or any of my relationships, I can go to them and say, hey, will you forgive me for what I have done? We can transact it, clean up our relationship, and now we can be reconciled. By the way, number four, forgiveness allows the offended person to release the offender from their sin, which is what I've been saying about the superiority of forgiveness over saying simply, I'm sorry. Forgiveness affirms the testimony of the gospel. I mean, Christ did die for our sins. And if we sin, but yet we don't ask for forgiveness for our sins, we're not affirming the purpose that Christ came in the first place. And so when we recognize that we have sinned and we ask God to forgive us for our sins, perhaps we have sinned against others too, and we ask them to forgive us for that sin as well. 
We are affirming God's word is true. Christ is legit. The gospel is authentic. That there is a reason that he came into this world. And we are affirming that by taking advantage of the grace that has been provided to us to actually walk out forgiveness with another individual. Number six, forgiveness brings glory to God because it's not minimizing the need for Christ to die. Imagine if someone gave you a gift, but you never used the gift. Well, God has given us a great gift in his son, not only to save us, that's the first time we ask for forgiveness, but in our progressive sanctification, as we continue to mature in Christ, daily, weekly, we're asking God to forgive us, not to save us or to keep us saved, but because we want to keep, we want to keep our, our slate clean, and we want to continue to mature in Christ. And so forgiveness brings glory to God because we're using the gift of Christ over and over again. Thank you, Christ, for taking my sin upon you. Number seven, forgiveness fosters humility, and I think that would be self-evident. Number eight, forgiveness removes sin between two people. That is a beautiful thing when there's not anything between the two individuals. Number nine, forgiveness gives a death blow to sin's advances. And so as you sin and when you sin, you, you ask forgiveness from God and anyone else that you may have sinned against, and that is a death blow to sin advances a wonderful thing that we do not have to be captured by our sins. And then finally, number 10, forgiveness pictures to others how to deal with sin. Imagine living in a home, a husband and wife who never ask for forgiveness. There's never an offender. There's never the offended. There's never a transaction of forgiveness. One of the if I could say it this way, in an ironic way, one of the beauties of sin is that we can clean up our messes and it gives a picture to our children. Because guess what? They will probably grow up, mature, and get married. They will marry a sinner more than likely. And they're going to have the same problems or similar problems that their parents had but they know how to deal with their sins because they've seen it acted out before them throughout their young lives as their parents have transacted forgiveness between each other. And so forgiveness is far superior than what some people choose to do by saying, I am sorry. I am sure you can add to my list. I would love to hear other things that come to your mind. I just gave you a list of 10 things. But other things that come to your mind as you think about forgiveness and why it is superior, it is a one of the many gifts that God has given us as he brings us into his family. And now what I would like to do is I want to walk through where forgiveness fits within the repentance process. I said earlier that forgiveness Forgiveness is one link in a sequence. It is one link in a, a chain, and we need to understand the entire chain. I call it the ordo, or the order of repentance. And so if you were to take forgive, uh, repentance, I was looking for a rubber band here, but I don't have one. But if you were to take forgiveness like a rubber band, and you were to stretch that word as far as you could, and then if you look inside that word, you, you would see all of this linkage. You'll see this sequence of steps of repentance. Forgiveness is one of those steps. Now, I'm not going to walk through the entire order of repentance here in this episode, but I do want to give you some of the linkages so that you can see where forgiveness fits in. And then once we get to that link of forgiveness, I want to drill down in that particular link. And so here's the initial order of forgiveness. Link number one. Well, that is sin, obviously. There would be no need for forgiveness if we did not sin. And so sin is a negative, I understand the beauty of the order of repentance is that's the only negative in the entire list. And so we sin. Sometimes we say we miss the mark. It's like an archer standing on a range and he shoots the arrow and he misses the target. That is a transgression. 
That's what we do when we sin. We transgress God's word. Now, when that happens, the second link in the chain is guilt. I am guilty. Now, guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a declaration. The world is guilty before God now, whether they feel it or not. It's like if you were to draw a line in the in the floor, across the floor, and you step across that line, that is a transgression. And once you step across the line, you may or may not feel anything at all. But the fact is, you are guilty before God because you have sin. And so link number one is sin. Link number two is guilt. Link number three is conviction. Now, this is a feeling. I talked about grieving the Spirit of God or quenching the Spirit of God. You see, Christians are alive in Christ. The Spirit of God lives in us, illuminates us. And when we sin, the Spirit of God is grieved because of that sin. It is quenched, and and we begin to sense that there is something wrong because we're not natural people anymore, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14. No, we have been made alive in God, according to Ephesians chapter 2. And because we are alive, the Spirit of God is active in us. We step across that line. We are not just guilty, but we know that there is something wrong. By the way, not just the Spirit of God bringing conviction into our psyches, into our souls, but it is also our consciences. God has given us an internal moral thermostat that that helps us to know the difference between right and wrong. You will read this in Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 where Paul was writing and saying that the Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the Gentiles who do not have the, the Old Testament, They do not have a Bible. In that case, the Old Testament was what he he was talking about. And so the Gentiles who do not have the Bible, they do the things contained in the Bible, and their consciences excuse them or accuse them. Everybody, whether they know anything about God's Word or not, has an internal moral thermostat that lets them know the difference between right and wrong. And so, you know, parents see this in their children, that when their children do wrong, they can't even read yet. They can't even talk yet, but you can see they know that they have done wrong because their conscience is is accusing them. Now, what happens so often with, with some of us is that we can ignore our conscience, and every time that we ignore our conscience, we start layering it. It becomes tougher. We are toughening it. We're putting a thin layer over our consciences every time uh, that we turn it down a little bit by justifying what we did, rationalizing what we did, saying that what we did did not matter, blaming what we did on another individual. Every time we do that, we lay a thin layer down over our consciences to where it becomes dull and eventually it can become hard. And we read in 1 Timothy 4.2 that it can become seared like a, a hot iron, like a cattleman putting a, a hot iron on the, on, the cow, on the cow's rump, and it just sears uh, that cattle, that cow. We can sear our conscience in a very similar fashion by ignoring the conviction that we are sensing. And so God gives us His Word to teach us between right and wrong. God gives us a conscience. In the Latin, it means conscience, co-knowledge. We have this inner voice that tells us if we're doing wrong. The Word of God teaches us. Our conscience teaches us. The Spirit of God illuminates us. And then sometimes we'll have very good friends who will come alongside and say, Hey, Uh, Let's talk about what you did there. And there's four means of grace that help us to recognize that maybe we have transgressed, that we have committed a sin. And so in this linkage of repentance, there is sin, guilt, conviction, and then, of course, number four would be confession. Confession simply means to agree. We have confessions of the faith. These long confessions that have been written out throughout church history, these are things that we as believers agree uh, on. 
It is a confession. And so when we confess our sins, dear God, I have sinned against you, we are agreeing with God that we have transgressed his law, a simple confession. Now, of course, if there are other people within that sphere of offense, God is always in the sphere of offense. Any sin that we commit is a a sin against God. Sometimes other people will be in that sphere of offense as well. And so we will confess to them. And that's what the confession is. And then this is where we get to the point of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness, we enter into a process with the people that we have offended. Of course, we always offend God every time we sin. And so we step into this sphere of confession And we say, God, would you forgive me for what I have done? If we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins. And then, of course, if there's other people that we have splattered upon, we will go to them and say, will you forgive me too? Perhaps you can think about it like that. That you're going down the road and you hit a mud puddle and it splashes on three people on the sidewalk. They're all wearing white outfits. What you want to do is you want to determine how many people did I splash upon uh, when I hit that mud puddle. How many people did I sin against when I transgress God's truth? God is always in the sphere of, of offense, and then there may be others too. And so you would go to them and ask them for forgiveness. Now, I'm going to come back to forgiveness and drill down, but I do want to mention two more links uh, in this sequence of repentance. Now, what I have covered so far is we have sin. Number two, there is guilt, whether you feel it or not. Three, there is conviction. Uh, Number four, there is confession. And then number five, there is forgiveness. These are the first five links in the order of repentance. Number six is reconciliation. Let's say that we work through the forgiveness that I'm going to explain in just a few moments. And you are forgiven, and then there is nothing between you. Uh, You could think of it here. I have a, uh, let's see, what what do I have here? I have a, a sticker here and uh, this little Life Over Coffee sticker, and let's call it sin. Of course, Life Over Coffee is not sin, but just suspend your imagination for just a moment. And so let's say this is sin, and so now there is something between us. It is sin. I work through the forgiveness process. The person forgives me. The sin goes away. There is nothing between us any longer. We are now reconciled. Number six is reconciliation. Once we neutralize the sin by the power of the gospel, there is nothing between the two individuals anymore. There's nothing between you and God, and there's nothing between you and the other people that you have splashed upon. And then number seven. Number seven is restoration. Paul said in Galatians 6, 1, that if anyone is caught, meaning sin has captured you, like an addiction, that's how we would think about it today. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself so that you don't send your brains out. That's my paraphrase, so that you don't send your brains out as you are helping them. And so number seven is restoration. And so once the sin is neutralized, once the sin is neutralized by the power of the gospel, it's not here anymore because you walk through these steps, sin, guilt, conviction, confession, and forgiveness, reconciliation, you now come together. At this juncture, you want to start working on the restoration process because you don't want to do it again. And so now the work begins, the sin is neutralized, and the work begins to overcome whatever that sin habit was so that you don't become a repeat offender. Now, there are more steps to the repentance process. Maybe in another episode, I can walk through all of them, but I wanted to get right up to the forgiveness aspect, talk a little bit past it with reconciliation and restoration. And now I want to come back to forgiveness, the point of this episode. And so we take our rubber band of repentance 
and we stretch it out as far as we can. Now we see all of these words, this linkage inside this word of repentance. And we have come up to the place of forgiveness. Now, at forgiveness, we're going to stretch the rubber band a little bit more, hoping that it doesn't snap. Because forgiveness, there are multiple parts here. And so this is where I want to, and, and this is the point of the episode practically walking through repentance, I mean, uh, practically walking through forgiveness, because we need to see what forgiveness is, because there is complexity here. There's also a lot of confusion that I've seen in my uh, counseling experience. I've been doing biblical counseling for more than a quarter of a century. I have met with thousands of people. I have no clue any longer. It's been so many people, and I've, I've dealt with these issues just over and over and over, ad infinitum. And, and what I see, there's common denominators, common denominators with, with all of these problems, and one of those is a lack of understanding of forgiveness. All right, so we got our rubber band stretched. We're at the forgiveness aspect or the link in the chain. And now we want to drill down. So there's three elements to forgiveness. I'll mention them, and then I will walk through them. The first is pre-forgiveness. The second one is forgiveness. And then the third one is post-forgiveness. And so those are the three aspects. You probably won't find any books written on this subject because these are things that I have experienced in counseling as I have tried to practically help people to walk through forgiveness. I've seen all three of these elements of forgiveness, and as I explain them to you, it will make perfect sense, I'm sure. And so there's pre-forgiveness, forgiveness, and post-forgiveness. Let's talk about pre-forgiveness. Pre-forgiveness is not about the offender. Pre-forgiveness is about the one who is offended. Pre-forgiveness is about the person on the sidewalk with the white suit. Pre-forgiveness is about the person that was splashed upon. You remember when I was talking about I'm sorry as a passive act that doesn't require anything from the offender? Uh, the offended, rather. Well, that's not how sin works. Because when you do run up on somebody, whether they wanted to be part of this accident or not, they are a part of the accident. They are a part of this wreck on the sidewalk, even though they were not asking for it, looking for it, wishing for it, hoping for it in any way. It's just like, it's almost like wrong place, wrong time. But nevertheless, they are part of the situation now, and you cannot ignore the fact that they are part of the situation. And now there is a responsibility on them to work through whatever they have to work through to overcome what has happened to them. You will see this in marriage often. Go back to my friends Biff and Mabel, the husband and wife. Uh, Biff sins against Mabel. Biff goes to Mabel and says, hey, I'm sorry for what I have done. And then he goes out into the garage and tinkers with his hobby. And Mabel is thinking, wow, I am still struggling. I've had no opportunity to communicate. I've had no opportunity to talk about what happened to me. I've had no opportunity for us to work through this conversationally. It's just this passive response. I am sorry. You go on about your married day. My white suit is covered with mud. I'm not sure how I'm going to get it clean. Look what you have done for me. Uh, to me. I'm harboring anger, and my heart is growing into bitterness. And so many couples live this way where they do not converse about what happened in a transgressive event. And what you will see over and over again is that pockets of silence will begin to grow between that couple. And that little pocket of silence to where uh, the offended has not had an opportunity to work through what the offender did to them. That pocket of silence will metastasize and it will grow. And then in a year or five or 10 or 15 or more, especially when empty nesting starts to set in, that pocket of silence will be a humongous 
ravine between the husband and the wife. And so pre-forgiveness is absolutely essential, and this is what it is. Pre-forgiveness is preparing your heart, the heart of the offended, to seek forgiveness from the offender or to to, uh, receive forgiveness from the offender. Now think about Joseph here. In chapter 50 of Genesis, verse number 20, uh, most of you all know that passage where Joseph's brothers came to him. Joseph is the offended. He didn't do anything wrong. His brothers are the offenders. They are the transgressors. And when they came to Joseph, you can hear in that text that Joseph had a heart or an attitude of forgiveness that was ready to receive his nasty, mean-spirited, harsh, sinning, transgressive brothers. The Lord must be our anchor point as sin angles to capture us, especially when someone sins against us. You see, when people sin against us, we didn't ask for it, but if we don't guard our hearts and actively anchor our hearts in God and God's Word, that sin can take hold of us and it can capture us. And therefore, we want to make sure that we do the work of preparing our hearts so that when Joseph's brothers come to you and they say, Will you forgive me? Will you forgive us for what we have done? That you're not sitting there with a heart of bitterness. You're not sitting there with a heart of anger. That you have worked through whatever you had to work through to come to a place to where you are ready to forgive the person who is asking you. And so that is one aspect of pre-forgiveness. And all too often, couples, whether they're married or parents and children or friend to friend, two or more people in a relationship where there's a dust up, they don't understand this concept of pre-forgiveness. And sometimes, and maybe this has happened to you, where the person comes to you and says, hey, will you forgive me for what I have done? And you may go right into Christian speak. You may say, yes, I forgive you. And then they go away thinking they are forgiven. They may or may not be forgiven. But you're thinking, huh. I am still struggling with you. I am having a hard time with you. And you can go away, and if you really don't take care of that, a seed of bitterness can can germinate, and it, it can sprout up in your soul, and it can begin to take captive of your mind, and it can impact how you think about that other individual who sinned against you because you haven't worked through what I am calling here pre-forgiveness, getting ready to transact forgiveness. You could call it an attitude of forgiveness. When there is no pre-forgiveness, when we do not have an attitude of forgiveness, there's some things that can go awry. I, I implied them already, but I want to say them clearly so that we truly understand that even though we didn't ask for it, even though we are the offended ones, we've got to do the work. If we do not do the gospel work in our hearts, for example, number one, your thoughts can enslave you as you dwell on the offending person's actions. Number two, Your thoughts can fixate on the hurt and what the person did to you. And so they not only enslave you and capture you, but you are fixated on it now. And every time you see this person or anything that reminds you of this person, you're so fixated on it, your thoughts begin to capture you. Number three, you struggle to process the nature of your relationship with this person. It will create a distorted relationship. And if you're married to a person and, and you haven't worked through the offenses that they have done to you, it will create a distortion in your relationship. Number four, your attitude toward the offender will ensnare you. Now let me illustrate, as I mentioned earlier, that my father... Uh, He was an abusive drunk, okay? He died at 42 from alcoholic-related. I mean, there was all kinds of things that were wrong with him by the time he was 42. Uh, But he was a full-blown drunk. It eventually took his life. 
and we had a horrendous relationship that was never reconciled because he probably wasn't a Christian. I most definitely was not a Christian. And because we could not wrestle, work through, or wrestle through probably would be more appropriate, wrestle through what was wrong with our relationship, my attitude toward him was horrible. Yes, I can make a case that he was abusive. I can make a case that he was the meanest man I've ever known. And people could feel sorry for me. But the truth is, I sinned against him. I was a rebellious teenager. I mean, I ended up in jail when I was 15 years old. I chose to smoke weed. I chose to drop acid. I chose to do all sorts of things. And it would be intellectually dishonest and sinful to blame all of those things on him because those were choices that I made. But he was a tremendous adverse shaping influence in my life. And so we had an adversarial relationship where both of us were guilty, specifically what I'm saying here in point number four, my attitude toward the offender had ensnared me. Number five, there is a relational awkwardness between you and the offender. And then number six, your heart will swirl. It will fluctuate. You'll have fluctuating desires as you try to gain clarity from the Lord. By the way, you will not be able to gain clarity from the Lord because if, if you're sinning in response to sin, guess what? That warring army, God opposes the proud in James 4, 6. That warring army will be warring against you. And so there's six reasons that should compel us to want to do the work of creating an attitude of forgiveness even if we're never able to transact that forgiveness with the other person. By the way, I was never able to transact forgiveness with my father for reasons that I've stated. I became a Christian six years after he died. He probably wasn't a Christian. We can never transact, but I'm not managed by what he did. I'm no longer controlled by what he did to me, even though we have never transacted forgiveness. And this is where you have to come to, regardless of what the offender ever does. You've got to have that attitude of forgiveness. That is one aspect of forgiveness. Now, what you don't want to become is you don't want to become that victim sinner. That's exactly what I was as a teenager. I was a victim to what my dad did to me, but I was also a sinner because I respond in transgressive ways toward my father. And sometimes victims of sin do not see or they cannot, they don't have the self-awareness to understand that they're sinning in response to sin. And then that creates this dangerous construct of the victim sinner. I have dealt with so many victim sinners in my counseling career, and it's very hard to talk to a person who has been legitimately victimized, but yet they're sinning their brains out. They become a sanitized victim. Meaning, because of what happened to them, they can elevate themselves to a place of moral superiority over the person that did such and such to them. And because they are a sanitized victim, they can say absolutely anything they want to the person who has sinned against them, even if they are sinning by the things that they're saying or doing. A sanitized victim that doesn't understand the victim-sinner construct is in a precarious position because they don't have an attitude of forgiveness toward the person. They're not ready to transact forgiveness because they're more focused on their victimization than their personal responsibility before God and then also toward the person who has offended or sinned against them. And so an attitude of forgiveness or what I'm calling pre-forgiveness is before you ever get to the point of stepping into a forgiveness conversation with someone. And so let's say that your attitude is ready and the offender comes to you. You can now receive them and you can transact forgiveness. And that is point two as we drill down into this forgiveness construct. Forgiveness is should be primarily active forgiveness. And what that means is, is that the, the sphere of offense, the, the bigness of the sin, and the sphere of confession, and the sphere of forgiveness are the same. These three spheres are basically the same. And so I draw a circle 
of the offense. How many people are inside that circle or that sphere? And then, well, I want to confess to all of the people that are inside that circle, everybody that I splashed upon. Well, my pursuance of forgiveness should be equitable to the sphere of offense and the sphere of confession. I've already stated that forgiveness is not an apology. Of course, the Greek word apologeo means to give a defense, as Peter was talking about. We don't want to give a defense. We don't want to go into apologeo, the Greek word for apology. No, we don't want to use I'm sorry at all when there is a legitimate transgression in play. We want to pursue forgiveness. And so the sphere of offense, confession, and forgiveness are the same. We're not, it's not an apology. We're not saying, I'm sorry. It is active, and it is active with specificity. And so forgiveness is, maybe you could say it this way, that it is an act of personal prosecution where you become the defendant and you become the prosecuting attorney. And so where you bring a case against yourself that is so clear, that is so honest, that is so transparent, it is so vulnerable that the person that you're asking to forgive you really has no choice. And that's really what you want. I mean, you, you want to make it easy for them to say, I forgive you. You want to make it easy for them to do that. And so the clearer you are with the specificity, all the specificity that you need, you present your case to the person that you sinned against, and they're sitting there or standing there thinking, wow, I think he understands. I think he knows what the, I think he knows what he did. And, and, and you're really helping them to step into that transaction where they're just motivated and compelled to say, I, hey, I think you get it. I, I, I forgive you. I forgive you. There's nothing sloppy, haphazard, willy-nilly about what you are doing, what you're saying. You truly understand the depth of your sin. You have sinned against God. You've sinned against me. You know exactly what you have done. I forgive you. Perhaps reading Psalm 51, David's uh, sent his confession in that psalm would give you a lot of clarity about the passion and the determination for him to be to be white, uh, uh, washed whiter than snow as he talks uh, throughout uh, that psalm in Psalm 51. And so, first of all, forgiveness is active. Number two, it is transactional meaning that you ask God first. It is a total transactional forgiveness, not just with humans, because sometimes what will happen, we can be very pragmatic when we sin against someone, and we can be more interested in damage control horizontally, and so we sin against someone and say, hey, will you forgive me, and kind of move on, not recognizing that we have sinned against God. And as I've already said, uh, the sphere of the sphere of the offense, the sphere of confession, and the sphere of forgiveness, it should be the same. And so forgiveness is active. Forgiveness is transactional. And then forgiveness is also attitudinal. This is going back to pre-forgiveness, that heart attitude that we have. Because here's the thing. There are some situations to where you cannot transact forgiveness. Let me give you four of those situations. Number one, when the offender is no longer living, like in the case of my dad. Number two, when the offender is unwilling to repent. Let's say that the person sinned against you and they are not asking you to, uh, for repentance. Well, guess what? They may always be incarcerated by what they did. They may always be guilty before God, but you don't have to be captured. As I talked about being enslaved and captured by what someone did to you, you don't want to be that forever victim. And so you want to work through so that you can gain an attitude of forgiveness toward that person, even though they may not ever ask you for forgiveness. And so when the offender is no longer living, you want an attitude of forgiveness. When the offender is unwilling to repent, you want an attitude attitude of forgiveness. And number three, when it's not possible or it's not wise to pursue transactional forgiveness, for example, when there's sexual abuse, you would not ask the abused victim to, you would not put them within, uh, within 100 miles of the person who sexually abused them. And so you would not press for transactional forgiveness in such a case as that. And then number four, when you can overlook the offense. Sometimes, 
Parents do this all the time, by the way. You can overlook the offense. And then the last step in this sequence is post-forgiveness. Post-forgiveness is when the power of the gospel has neutralized the sin between the offender and the offended. Reconciliation happens because of Christ. You will know if there has been true transactional forgiveness if that sin does not animate in the future and start walking around the living room again. If you can kick it like roadkill and it's like it is dead, it has been neutralized by the power of the gospel. Uh, he has, Biff has asked for forgiveness. Mabel has worked through all the heart contortions that she had to work through, and she's legitimately at a place of, of, uh, of granting forgiveness to Biff. And both of them are genuine. Both of them are sincere. Forgiveness has been transacted between them. Well, now they can step into post-forgiveness, and that, that transgression is truly dead. It's not going to animate you can kick it. And by the way, the reason that this is important, you can kick it and it won't move. And the reason this is important is because you want to talk about it. It's essential that you talk about it because you want to move into this full repentance process because Mabel actually wants to talk about it and Biff wants to talk about it because they don't want to do it again. Mabel doesn't want Biff to do it again. And, and Biff, he's, if he's genuine, he doesn't want to do it again. And so he wants to call on Mabel to help him, to work with him, to help restore him so that he can uh, work out full repentance. But if you can't talk about what you did wrong, then, well, there's something wrong with this process of repentance that I'm laying out for you. And so this is this episode is about practically thinking about repentance. I trust these thoughts have helped you. And what I would encourage you to do is go to lifeovercoffee.com and you could just type the word forgiveness in the search box and you will probably get more than 50 resources on forgiveness. They're all free to you. And so I would encourage you to do that, uh, that you... Uh, do that work because there's a lot more information. And just this brief time I've had to walk through it doesn't fully um, communicate all that is a part of forgiveness. Now, if we can serve you in any way, please uh, hit the Get In Touch feature at the bottom of our website, and we would love to be, be able to uh, help you and to guide you through our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com to help you find the resources that you need. Also, don't forget to drop by our store. Uh, our store, we give away uh, hundreds and hundreds of digital books every month and we have a lot of digital books for you you're welcome to take advantage of them they're all free uh, you can download them and i have one that's titled uh, do not say i'm sorry and do not uh, apologize it's something like that you would see it in our store for those of you who are interested in ongoing training in biblical counseling the skill of doing discipleship in the context of a local church or within your own marriage and other relationships we do have a mastermind program and i would encourage you to uh, check it out. We have a full informational LMS, a learning management system at lifeovercoffee.com, and you can walk through that LMS. It will explain it to you clearly, and maybe this is something that you would want to do to learn how to do the work of biblical counseling. It's self-paced. It fits right in line with the life that you're living, and so you can do it. It's all online, by the way, and so that is an advantage. You can, t you can do it anywhere that you want, just uh, in a coffee shop or at home. That would be uh, your choice. But any way that we can help you, and I would encourage you to talk about uh, this idea of forgiveness, especially with your most important relationships. You have a husband, you have a wife, you have children. Uh, this episode would be a great asset to a family discussion or a marriage discussion, maybe inside of a small group that you can... Uh, go through this episode that you can take notes and and really wrestle through this because we have an advantage we have the ability to uh, forgive one another and we have the ability to legitimately transact that forgiveness with those who have offended us thank you so much for watching and god bless thanks for joining us 
Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.